Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Okay, so welcome everybody. Uh, I tested positive for COVID last Sunday. And so uh, those who got the email or others who, who know, thank you for your prayers. Thank you uh, for your, your concerns, phone calls, texts, all that stuff. I've actually had a pretty mild case, um, tired, little stuffy, had some aches and stuff for a little while, but for the most part, I'm, I'm doing okay. But I still appreciate your prayers and pray that Gretchen doesn't get it. She doesn't have it so far and pray that she doesn't get it. Uh, also, confirmation kids, seventh uh, and eighth grade, we are gonna Zoom our class on Wednesday. So confirmation will be on Zoom on Wednesday evening. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Speak into our lives, whether we're watching at home or, or listening in our cars or however we're receiving this. Please speak into our lives today and we will say thank you, Jesus. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is what we'll be looking at. If you got a Bible, grab it and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And in this section, it begins with something that we really don't deal with in America. When I was in India, I was uh, at a temple to the god of death, Kali, and I watched them sacrificing little baby goats to this god of death, and then they would eat these goats. And in uh, Corinth, when uh, meat was, was butchered, many times it was butchered in a temple and it was offered up to Zeus or Aphrodite or some god, possibly even Caesar. And Christians come out of this, um, this kind of idol worship mentality, and some of them said, wait a minute. I can't eat food that's been offered to some other God. I mean, that's, that's tainted. It's, it's somehow connected to this meat. And then you have other Christians, they're like, hey, they're not gods. Just because they call them God, just because they worship them, there's only one God. So it doesn't affect the meat. The, the meat is good. And so you had this like division in the church. And Paul uses gospel eyes to talk about this division. And, and you know, I think... There's something in this for even our divisions today in the church, outside the church, and how to interact with it. So let's dive in. So he begins by talking about meat sacrifice to idols. And then he says, hey, we know that we possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up. It's kind of funny. Knowledge puffs up. You know, in America, we think about knowledge. You probably, mine goes to school and how you had tests. And when you studied really hard, you got a really good grade on the test. You went home and you're like, look at the good grade I got. Because you studied and your teacher imparted their wisdom to you. And then you've got it now. And now this knowledge is all about you and how much you know. Right? And if you study real hard and do real well, you might be salutatorian or valedictorian of your class. I, I saw a picture online of a Japanese graduation where they had two robots and then they had like um, iPad screens with black and white faces on them of graduates. And then they had their diplomas in the hands of the robots and the robots even have like cap and gown on. 
And there is a picture with the provost with his arms around the robots with the faces on the screens. And uh, it's a crazy time, isn't it, during COVID? But when you study real hard and you get to this level and you're like, yeah, I, I can put this on my resume. I'm a salutatorian. I'm a I'm a valedictorian. You need you can and and your knowledge is all about you and and your achievements, and sometimes this can give you a big head. You know, your the stuff that you know can make you look down on those who didn't know and didn't do as 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 well as you. Now the Bible doesn't want you to be stupid. I mean, like if you're looking for a doctor, you know, the biblical way of looking for a doctor is not, you know, find the dumbest doctor around there, you know, but, but you want a doctor that is skilled and knows what they're doing, right? That has a lot of knowledge or if you, if you get your taxes done, you don't want to go to an idiot. You want to go to somebody who knows what they're doing. But the Bible would say that knowledge, your knowledge isn't for you. It's for others. Right? The more you know about the Bible, the more you know Jesus, the more that you are to be a blessing and I am to be a blessing to others. That's why Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Another translation said, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Man, if there's a Bible verse that would be great to memorize is this 1 Corinthians 8 just that bit of chapter one, knowledge puffs up, verse one, I should say, but love builds up. And knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay, we'll try to say it with me. Ready? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Great. Thank you. So get that in your heart. He goes on and he says, hey, if anybody imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So what is Paul going to say? Hey, how are we believers to know something? He says, let me tell you. But if anybody loves God, he is known by God. You see, it isn't so much about the stuff you know in your head, but it's what this intimate relationship of God knowing me, more than just me knowing God, God knowing me, changes my knowledge into service. So the stuff that I know, although it's important, it's how can it be used in other people's lives? How can it be used to, to bless other people? I'm always amazed at the, the flowers that show up on the altar. I won't mention her name because she'd be embarrassed, but we have somebody that can just take flowers from the yard or whatever and just make them so beautiful. She's got, it's a gift, it's her knowledge and she just, blesses the congregation quietly over and over and over again. Her knowledge is blessing others. It's building others up. I uh, saw a book by a guy named Brian Rosner, and he, after so many years into marriage, found himself divorced. And he, and he wrote a book called Known by God, and he said, you know, knowing God, me knowing him, had always been a big driver in my life but suddenly it didn't cut it. He says, discovering that I was known by God intimately and personally as his child made a huge difference and a great comfort for me. I mean, do you see that? It was all about him being known by God that comforted me. That's the gospel. 
that I am known by God. It, 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 Jesus comes to this earth. The, the guy can turn water to wine. He goes up on a mountain and his body glows bright like white. I, I mean, he is so far above us. And, and he doesn't take this wisdom and this knowledge and just like look down on humanity. He's like, no, I've come to serve, not to be served, and give my life as a ransom for many. So those who know God, it's like we get this impartation of the Christ-likeness. So our knowledge isn't for us. Our theological knowledge isn't for us. It's for others. So how does this work out in the practical planes of everyday living? What, what would he have us do? How does he talk to the church in Corinth? Well, he goes on and he says, therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Paul's like, let me tell you, you guys who know that idols are nothing, you're right, you're right. What are you supposed to do with that? He goes, however, not all possess this knowledge. So he's like, some among you don't get it. They don't, they don't understand it this way. But some through their former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So Paul is saying, hey, although they don't know the truth and they're not operating as if the truth is real, when they eat this, their conscience is defiled. He's saying there, what the heck does he mean by they, they have a weak conscience or their conscience is defiled? What, what does it mean to have a weak conscience? Tim Keller writes this, he says, weak conscience is a conscience which is too weak to protect the person from feeling defiled, from feeling always guilty and feeling condemned. You see, a weak conscience is one that does not fully sit in the grace and love of Jesus. Like they're all about keeping rules. They're, they're, they, they, they need to be like, that's right, that's wrong. I, I remember uh, years ago, my kids were in school. They had a friend whose mom didn't allow them to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is this wonderful allegory, Christian allegory, that is just beautiful. But the Bible says don't have anything to do with witchcraft. And this book talks about a witch. And if there's a witch in this book, then they should not read it because the Bible says don't have anything to do with witchcraft. You see, that person has a weak conscience. They, they, weak conscious people are they're not comfortable with gray areas. They like to see things as right or wrong. They like lists. They like, they like it to be that way. Um, they, and they can also be judgmental. They can be judgmental because, hey, the Bible says don't have anything to do with witchcrafts. And you're reading this book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that's, that's wrong, you know. And how are you supposed to deal with people in the church when you might actually know the truth, you might have a strong conscience, but here's somebody with a weak conscience and they're coming across as judgmental. Well, well Paul did say, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no one but God and, and the strong people know this. Now, if you're like me, your human tendency is like this. Hey, 
guys, don't be dumb. Don't be stupid. Don't, don't, like, don't live like that. An idol is nothing, you know, and you, you, I am equally as judgmental with my knowledge as somebody who has a weak conscience. You see, the people with a strong conscience or more faith, they can be judgmental too. They know the grace of God. The people are, they're comfortable with gray areas, right? People who are strong conscious probably are people who say things like this, eat the fish, spit out the bones. You know, there's many books that I read or articles that I read where there's good stuff in it. Maybe written by a Christian, may not be written by a Christian, but I eat the fish, the good stuff, and the stuff that isn't true, I just spit it out. I don't, I don't assimilate that into part of my understanding. And, and that's what people with a, a stronger conscience do. They're, they're comfortable with gray areas. They're, they're comfortable with exposing themselves to, to other ways of thought because they're able to discern the, the truth. And they also, I also, maybe you also, can struggle with judgmentalism too. Because a strong conscience person can be judgmental of the judgmental person. They can be intolerant of the intolerant person, right? They can be self-righteous, feel above the self-righteous people. And the Apostle Paul speaks to those who are strong, and he is he's a harsher critic for those. You see, both parties are saying, listen, you need to see things my way in order for us to get along. The weak people are saying that. The strong people are saying that. But what does the Apostle Paul say to those who are strong? What are the gospel eyes that he wants them to have? Well, look what he says in verse 9, he says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So you have a right to eat whatever you want, but make sure it doesn't cause someone to stumble. And if anybody sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And It's like he's going to eat it, but he feels bad about eating it, and that's not good. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed and the brother for whom Christ died. So he's like, man, if you're moving that person to go against what should be a clear conscience, then you shouldn't eat. Like, you shouldn't do it. Now, what's fascinating here is that I think there's a way of understanding, a way of living for those who would consider themselves strong that works in the world, that works in the church. You see, what do we know about the strong people? The strong people have the truth, right? They're able to look at the person with error and go, that's wrong. The Apostle Paul, he reiterates, hey, this is truth, right? He's not waffling on the truth. And if you see yourself as somebody who knows or is in the know and then you're moving in circles where people disagree with you, it's okay to hold on to the truth. It's okay to know that you, you are right and, and they are wrong. But it's not okay to go, don't be stupid. You're wrong, dude. You know, I think 
what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church, seek to understand the other person. Seek to empathize with the other person. Seek to even see if there's maybe some strengths in, in the way the other person thinks. Like, don't divide over this. Humble yourself. And then secondly, I think the Apostle Paul would, would say, stay connected. You know, as you go out into the world, there's lots of people who aren't going to believe the way you believe. And if you want to be somebody who is an influence for the kingdom of God, there's a lot here for us. Like, just because you have the truth, you can, you can know the truth and articulate the truth, but, but if you come at it with a haughty spirit, or I'm better than you, or I know this, and you know, nobody wants to hear from you. And if you're somebody who, when you find out that there's a difference between you and somebody else, now you just divide over that, you may be able to share the gospel because you stay in the relationship with somebody that's different than you. I'm going to close with this. I read this this week. It's called Drunk at a Prayer Meeting by Scott Saul. He says, once we were having a small group prayer bat gathering with some friends, and just before we began to pray together, in came a husband and a wife that we had never met. They had been invited by someone else in the group. The man, who I will call Christopher, was very intoxicated. And his wife had this look like she'd been through the war. Her eyes said, please, somebody help me. I'm dying on the inside. As we began to pray, Christopher chimed in. His was a drunk prayer. And it went on for over 10 minutes and he prayed some of the strangest things you might imagine. And after the amen, everyone looked at me like, Pastor, what are we to do? Thankfully, I didn't need to do anything because a woman from the group full of love and emotional intelligence offered Christopher a cookie. As the woman was giving him a cookie and entertaining a conversation about Klingons and such, the others of us went over to his wife And we begged for insight into the situation. And this little interaction, this way of responding with love, with no condemnation, first became one of the most transformative experiences I'd ever witnessed. To make a long story short, this kind-heartedness of a cookie led to a tribe of people coming around the couple and their two children, which led to a month of rehab in Arizona, including flights, personal visits, prayers, support offered at the rehab center by church members, which led to sobriety, which led to a restored home and marriage, which led to Christopher becoming a follower of Jesus, which led to him becoming an elder in the church. To this day, Christopher remains the best, most empathetic, most impactful church elder I've ever had the privilege of serving alongside of. Grace comes before ethics, belonging before behavior, kindness before repentance, no condemnation before the morality discussion, love, the broad embrace of the narrow path, the ultimate eulogy virtue creates the most life-giving experience you'll ever be a part of. But how can we begin to live this way? How can we begin to live from this love that the Christopher story 
became, so the Christopher story becomes a norm for us rather than an exception. How do we create an environment in which this kind of love flourishes? Here's how, he says. First, we must realize that love is the environment that we're already living inside of. Love has to be a person before it can be a verb. The one who is love incarnate, Jesus, doesn't just love us when we're at our best. He loves us even at our worst. When we're caught in an act, when we fall asleep on him instead of watching and praying, when we deny him three times, when we become his persecutor, when we come to a prayer meeting drunk, drunk on our ambitions or greed or resentful grudges or uh, inappropriate imaginations or self-righteousness. You see, it's from these places Jesus asks us, do you want a cookie? May I get you one? Will you sit with me? How about rehab? May I accompany you there? May I pay the fees? May I come alongside you towards sobriety and then new life and a seat at my table and a job in my kingdom? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your grace is sufficient. Your power is perfected in weakness. Thank you for your word to each of us today. Lead us on in you, and we'll say thank you. Amen. God bless you guys. See you soon. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.